I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, and we'll be looking at this morning the verses 1 through 18. Luke 16, verses 1 through 18. This is God's word. Please give it your full attention. Jesus also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called to him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in, un, in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For, but for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Speaking of marriage, when my wife and I were first married, we, uh, after I finished my schooling and I had my first church, we got connected, thankfully, to a good Christian financial advisor who not only taught us about some basic biblical principles about how to manage our very tiny income at that time, but to do so in such a way that would put away some money, some investments to provide for our future, our children's future, a very biblical concept. I don't remember what they called that approach to investing and using your resources back then, but today they call it biblically responsible investing. In other words, using the principles of scripture to guide how you invest your resources in this world. Over the years, we, you know, we actually invested our money into a company. It was called A.L. Williams at the time, I remember. 
It was a company that was committed to those biblical values and uh, the companies that we that that mutual fund put our little bit of money into were companies that we felt good about uh, in terms of the impact it had those companies had in the world and didn't have the kind of impact we didn't want those companies to have. Well, over the years, that company got bought out by bigger and bigger mutual fund companies and to the point where not that long ago, I just really didn't know for sure how my money was being invested or whether those values were still guiding uh, the way in which our monies were invested by the mutual fund advisors or not. Thankfully, uh, a few years ago, um, Mike Sunderland, one of our deacons, and his wife Hillary, they started working for a uh, biblical financial and investment planning company. And they sat down with my wife and I, and we worked through it all again and uh, feel much better about our resources. They're being used for uh, going into companies and places where we feel good about where the money's being used. I say all that as my own personal experience because it's been a lifetime of learning how to use the material wealth, the material possessions that we own in a, in a Christ-loving, kingdom-oriented sort of way. Really, that's a lot of what sanctification is. You know, we preachers hate to preach about money. We really do. Most of us do, anyway. Some of them, those are the ones you have to worry about that don't hate preaching about money. But it's all through Scripture. The Bible knows that how we use our money, how we use our material resources, says a lot about who we are and what our priorities are. And because of that, the Bible, and Jesus especially, continually keeps coming back to the topic. So if you're going to preach the Scriptures, you're going to preach a lot about money. Don't blame me. Last week, we looked at the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son was about a young man who squandered. That was the word in the English that was used in verse 13 of chapter 15. This young man squandered his father's inheritance. Lived for pleasure. He lived for the moment. And he wasted everything that he was given in terms of his inheritance. Here in chapter 16... Jesus tells another parable, but this one is about a manager who squandered his master's resources. The word wasted there in verse 1 is the very same word in Greek that is used in the parable of the prodigal son about the, the prodigal son squandering his inheritance. And so this concept is at the middle of both of these parables. Earthly resources, money and other earthly resources being squandered, being wasted. In looking at this parable, we shift from the relationship, the father-son relationship we saw in the prodigal son, to how we relate to our belongings, how we relate to our bank account, how we relate to our investments. And that's the issue that Jesus is dealing here. And so we're asking, how do we invest as disciples of Jesus Christ? What does it look like? In this story, Jesus tells us about a pretty despicable guy. He was the business manager for a very wealthy landowner, which meant he managed the, the owner's properties, and he was accountable to the landowner, and he is about to get fired. It says he was squandering, he was wasting his master's assets. What we assume is that that is through mismanagement, that he was mismanaging his master's resources, not that he was 
uh, embezzling or some criminal act or else he wouldn't have just been fired. He's being fired because he didn't do his job very well. He wasted the resources. Matter of fact, we get the idea that he was lazy. I get that from verse 3. It says the manager, when he found out that he was about to be fired, he said, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. So he uh, saw himself as being above manual labor and above begging from others. And so how is he going to provide for his future? He's in dire straits. He couldn't work as a manager again. His reputation in the community would be ruined. And there was no severance, and there was no welfare to rely upon. So the owner tells this manager, get the books in order. He gave him some time to get the books in order and have him turn them in so that he could be fired. As he's doing so, as he's going through the books, as he's looking at the list of debtors and what they owe, an idea comes to him, a brilliant idea. He says he needs to set himself up so that people will receive him into their houses after he's fired. In other words, so that others will provide for him when he's no longer able to provide for himself. The debtors that he's referring to here were probably renters. If you know anything about the old sharecropping system where you'd have basically this wealthy landowner would own massive amount of property, but then he would rent out the property and debtors, these renters, would be able to farm a section of the master's property and return a portion of that, agreed upon portion of the harvest, would return to the landowner as the rent. And so that's the business relationship we're talking about here. The first debtor that the manager calls in says that he owes a hundred measures of oil to the landowner. A hundred measures of oil. I don't know how they figured this out, but they figured out that that's about 875 gallons of olive oil. The oil that's being referred to would come from an olive grove. 875 gallons. So we're talking, we're not talking, when we think of sharecroppers, we think of poor people, oppressed people, because that's the way it was down south. The sharecroppers were taken advantage of, and they were all poor, most of them anyway. Well, in this case, these renters, they were not poor. They, were, had, they had wealthy going businesses. This is a lot of resources. 875 gallons of oil that he owed as rent to the landowner. And so the manager says, quickly, you know, sit down before this is found out. Quickly, sit down and pay your bill at, 50, at a 50% discount. 50% discount. You can imagine how thankful this renter would be. The second debtor comes in and he owed 100 measures of wheat, which translates into about 1,000 bushels of wheat as rent to the landowner. And so the manager says, I'm going to give you a 20% discount, only 80 measures of wheat. Well, what does he get from this little bit of deception that he does? Well, he gets favors. These renters owe him a big favor, saved him a lot of money, something he can cash in down the road when he's needy and poor. There's a surprise twist at the end, though. The manager, of course he's angry, he's furious that he was cheated out of this significant amount of rent. And he can't really do anything. I'm sure he's frustrated because he couldn't go back to the renters and say, hey, you know, this was a mistake, you owe me this much because that would look bad, that would come back badly on his own reputation. So he's stuck and his manager's gonna get away with it. 
but he commends him. He actually praises him for his shrewdness. Verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. The word shrewdness means his cleverness, his cunning, his ingenuity in providing for himself. Why would Jesus praise a dishonest manager like this? This, this parable has troubled uh, a lot of interpreters because Jesus is holding up as an example to us of how to manage our resources, a dishonest manager who cheats his master out of a lot of money. Well, I've never really actually had that much trouble with it because I think it's fairly easy to distinguish what he's really praising him for. He's praising him for one thing while he's furious at him for another thing. For instance, when you preach a sermon, there's two aspects of preaching a sermon. You have to write a sermon, and then you have to present that sermon. If you've ever been in speech class or ever given a speech, there's the writing part, and then there's the presentation part, the actual speaking part of it. I have, in the past, written good sermons, but preached them badly. And I've also written bad sermons and preached them really well. That's when you should really be scared. And when you compliment me afterwards, it's legitimate to say, Pastor, you presented that really well. You preached that really well. And I will not know whether you like the content at all. Or you can say, that's a really well-written sermon, Pastor. And I'll assume that you mean that I preached it very poorly. <laughs> See, we can make that distinction. We can praise somebody for one aspect of what they've done while not liking at all another aspect of what they've done. It's the same way in which... Historians will sometimes praise Adolf Hitler for being a charismatic leader and a brilliant military strategist at the same time, uh, saying how evil and horrible he was and all that he did. So we make that distinction. And that's what Jesus is asking us to do with this dishonest manager. He was deceptive. He was dishonest. He was a cheater. He was certainly worldly in his perspective and his desires, but he was shrewd. He was clever, he was cunning, he was strategic. And that's what he's commending. So what does it mean for us? Why is this an example to us? What does it mean to be shrewd as a disciple of Christ as we manage the resources that he gives to us? Well, first of all, I need to make clear that this is teaching. In verse 1, it says that Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's not telling people how to get into the kingdom of God. He's not teaching a way of salvation. He's talking to people who are already saved by grace, through faith, in him. He's talking to saved people. Once you've been saved by grace, how then should we live? That's what this parable is about. We are to live, first of all, thankfully. Remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You see, everything we do with our earthly resources is based in a thankfulness for the grace that Christ, who was so rich as the eternal Son of God on the throne over the universe, made himself poor, became one of us, took on the, slave of a, the, 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 the form of a slave, and was obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. He became the poorest of all poor, where he took our sin upon himself on the cross and died in our place, 
so that we, through his poverty, through his self-sacrifice at the cross, we might become rich. And so it really becomes for us, those who have been saved by grace, to understand what does it mean to be rich in Christ, no matter what our earthly status is. What does it mean to be rich in Christ? How do we live with our earthly resources? Jesus challenged his disciples. At one point, he said to them, be wise, and the word there could be translated shrewd or cunning or clever. Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. What does that mean in terms of our earthly investments? Well, first of all, Jesus is teaching us that we are to invest according to a biblical worldview. We must allow, just like the Christian financial advisor taught my wife and I very early on, we must apply the truths of a biblical worldview to our life in this world and the resources that we are asked to manage. Invest your resources according to a biblical worldview. Jesus says to his disciples, the sons of this world are wiser in using their money, they're wiser in using their resources for their earthly well-being than the sons of light are in using their earthly resources for their spiritual well-being. He's making that distinction. This manager was wise according to his worldview. I mean, think back to the prodigal son in chapter 15. He was foolish by the world's worldview, by the world's values. He was foolish because he took his inheritance and he blew it in a short period of time. He went through it very quickly. And we saw last week that when he had used up his entire inheritance on the pleasure of the moment, that when famine hit, he had nothing. And he was left destitute, envying the food of the pigs that he cared for. He was foolish by this world's worldview, by this world's value. He was foolish. Jesus is saying, no, this manager was wise by this world's values. He acted wisely according to his materialistic, self-centered, temporal worldview. If there's no God... If death is the end of everything, then do whatever it takes to hoard as much stuff, as much pleasure, as much material, well, you know, good things for your well-being here on earth. Accumulate as much as possible. Minimize your pain and maximize your pleasure. But make sure you've got that for the course of your whole life. Don't blow it all in a moment. Make sure you can meter it out over the course of your life so that you can live an easy and comfortable life here in this world. That manager was wise. He was shrewd in that regard. But we don't have that worldview. We don't live by those values. We live by the values of Scripture. We live by the values of the kingdom of God. God's word gives us a different way of looking at the world. Jesus is Lord. That's our central abiding creed. Jesus is Lord. And if that's true, then what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 must be the driving force in the way that we look at our earthly life. He says there, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. In other words, live by the principles of the lordship of Christ, that the kingdom of God is here. In verse 16, he, Jesus throws in there, seems unrelated at first, but he makes a reference to John the Baptist coming to announce the kingdom of God. And when the king arrived, 
John the Baptist said the kingdom, of, uh, the kingdom of God is at hand. It is about to come. And then the king arrived, Jesus Christ, as the messianic, the promised messianic king. From that point on, the kingdom was established on earth. The kingdom is here. And so Jesus says, since that time, true believers, people who are being drawn to Christ and being brought into the kingdom, they, they forced their way in. And the word, he uses a word there that's it's very intensive. It could mean violence, but it doesn't in this case. It means just forcibly put pressing into the kingdom. It's kind of like when they open the, the, the doors at Target on Black Friday. You know, everybody forces their way in. for the, They want to be where the blessings of Target are. Well, we, those who are drawn by the Holy Spirit, force their way into the kingdom. We want to get in, and we're driven by these kingdom values. We live our lives by a different set of rules and values. Back when we first learned these principles about how to invest our money, the, the big thing about mutual funds were avoiding mutual funds that invested in what they called sin stocks. In other words, companies that made their money off of things that are detrimental to your physical health, your moral health, your physical health, Staying away from companies that make money off of pornography or abortion or casinos, those sort of things. It was all about avoiding sin stocks. But we came to understand over time, it's more than that. It's more about avoiding things that we don't support. It's about putting your resources in places where it produces good things in the values of the kingdom. We seek first the kingdom of God. So we are going to seek to use our resources to promote beauty to promote truth, to promote order, to promote things that reflect the values of the kingdom of God. And that can be very widespread, the ways in which we use our resources to, to uh, support those kinds of things. Have you ever thought, and there's something inherently wrong with this thought, but I've heard Christians say it, if I ever won the lottery, something inherently problematic about that statement, but... The idea is if I suddenly had $10 million to spend. And I've heard Christians say, you know, I would love to just, you know, give tens of thousands of dollars to the mission field and $10,000 to this teaching ministry that's meant so much to me. And I, I would certainly tithe to my church. And, you know, but did you ever notice that according to the Bible, according to a biblical worldview, God doesn't measure you by how much you give, but by how you give it, the attitude behind your giving, and the proportion compared to what you have. He measures it according to what you have. Think about the, the widow. The widow put two small coins in the offering, whereas this wealthy Pharisee put a big check in the offering, and yet it was only a small portion of his, what he totally, what his total worth was. And Jesus praised the widow because she gave the two small coins because it represented what she had. And so... God doesn't, you know, there, there's no, sometimes I see in Christian uh, colleges, Christian seminaries, Christian ministries, even some churches, you'll see like the, the, the plaques on the wall of the, the gold donors and the silver donors and the bronze donors, you know, some gave a million, some gave a half million, some gave 10,000, some gave a hundred, you know, it doesn't work that way in the kingdom of God. He doesn't measure it that way. If you only have $10 to your name, He's looking to see how you're going to use that $10. Uh, it's, it's all about your faithfulness in what you've been given. And some people are given a lot more, some people are given a lot less. But it's faithfulness in how much you've been given.
So you need to invest according to a biblical worldview. That's the first point. The second point that Jesus is making in this parable is that you need to invest your resources with an eternal perspective. That's part of having a biblical worldview, of course, but I'm particularly focused on, and it certainly makes a difference in this story, the manager did not have an eternal perspective. He managed it according to this life being all there is, the, the perspective of under the sun in the book of Ecclesiastes, as though this is all there is. And he was shrewd according to that worldview. But we are to invest with an eternal worldview, with a view to eternity. If you knew today what was going to be the next Apple stock or the next Microsoft stock or the next Google stock, if you knew you somehow, and there's books and movies written about this, that somehow somebody gets some information in advance on what's going to be the next great stock, and you, you, could, you could be really, really rich. But that's the point that Jesus is making in this parable is we do know the future. We do know it comes after death. We know what the eternal kingdom looks like. So we need to invest accordingly. He says in verse 10, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? What he's saying there is that the, your heart is being tested right now. Your value system is being tested by how you're using the resources that God has placed in your hands. You are handling a little, very little, compared to the eternal worth that's coming in the future. And how you handle that is a test of how you'll handle true riches in the future. The, um, he calls it unrighteous wealth. I just feel like I need to make an editorial comment. He calls it unrighteous wealth, and I'm not really sure why he calls it that. That's a literal translation, unrighteous wealth. It seems in context what he's saying, worldly wealth. In other words, the money that we use as currency in this, in this world, how we get things we need and do things we need to do in this world with the currency that's here. But I thought about it thinking, yeah, you know, if you pull a $5 bill or a $10 bill or a $20 bill out of your wallet, just think how many different uses that piece of paper has had throughout the course of its life, from the time that the mint put it out into circulation to the point where you used it. It could have been used for all kinds of nefarious purposes, all kinds of evil purposes, as well as good purposes. In other words, the money of this world is tainted. It's part of this world, and it's tied up into the system of this world. But we can redeem that money. We can redeem its use by using it with a view to eternity. In verse 14, Luke calls the Pharisees lovers of money. That's how that part ties in. He's pointing out, see, the Pharisees weren't who he's talking. He told this parable to his disciples, but the Pharisees were listening in. And Luke says he actually he labels them lovers of money, which is a horrible condemnation of those who were supposed to be the spiritual leaders of Israel. They were lovers of money. And Jesus says, you can't serve both God and money. He's primarily thinking of these Pharisees. You can't serve both God and money. You can't profess to be spiritual leaders, humble, pious people, while serving the money, the things of this world that provide the comforts and the pleasures and the rewards of this world because ultimately one or the other is going to be your God. And he's saying to these Pharisees, here what he's saying to the Pharisees, money is your God. You say you serve Yahweh, the one true God, but you actually serve money. And so that's why this test of the heart is necessary. Remember Judas, 
It says in John chapter 12 that Judas was in charge of the money bag, which meant that, meant that he was the treasurer for the 12 disciples. But it also says in that same verse that he used to help himself to what was put into it. You see, long before Judas betrayed Christ, he was already failing the test of how to manage a little of this world's resources. He was already failing the test. It was an indication that he would be the one to betray Christ. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, it was read earlier in the service, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We don't like to come face to face with this, but this is, again, the Bible teaches us about how we use our wealth is such an important point, and this is why. Because your bank account, your bank statement, and your portfolio exposes your heart. How you use this world's currency, this world's money, this world's resources, how you use it exposes where your heart is. In verse 12, he goes on to say, and if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? If you think about it, doesn't it feel backwards? Don't we usually say, if you're not faithful in your own resources, who's going to entrust you with somebody else's? That's how we usually tend to think of that, but Jesus actually says it backwards here. Jesus says, who's going to give you your own resources if you're not faithful in another, in what that which belongs to another? And that's where the whole concept of stewardship comes in. We are managers of God's resources. We say we own our car, we say we own our house, we say we own our belongings, but they belong to the Lord. True riches are in this eternal worldview. True riches are in the life to come. There's where we will reign as kings and queens, princes and princesses in the kingdom of God for eternity. That's where we will have true riches. In this life, we're managing God's resources. And we're accountable as managers, not owners. This life is about exchanging. This life is about exchanging things that have worth and value in this life with things that have worth and value in eternity. Exchanging earthly currency for eternal currency. That's what discipleship is about. And it's okay to seek to feather your own nest in eternity. It's okay because the Bible continues. We struggle with this because we believe in salvation by grace alone that anything good thing that we have or ever will have comes from God. But when it comes to our heart's desires, the Bible is very clear that it's okay to desire what's good for you in the future. It's good for you. Matter of fact, it's necessary for you to desire for good things for yourself in the future. But what qualifies that, the important qualification on that is that Christ changes your heart. So that what you desire is good for your future stops being selfish and about your own kingdom and your own pride and your own glory. Stop being about that. What is good in your mind now is about what's good for others and what's good for the glory of God. And what you begin to realize through the course of your sanctification as you grow as a manager of God's resources is that you begin to realize that there is great reward for faithfulness. There is great reward to come. And if we live for those true riches and use our earthly riches towards that purpose, then we will be truly wealthy and rich for eternity. That's what Jesus promises. He says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. 
Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Or even more unabashedly, he says in Luke chapter 6, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. You see, the health and wealth preachers are dead wrong because they say that if you hoard this world's goods, you are truly blessed. But what the Bible teaches is if you use this world's resources as a manager for the, for the good of others and for the glory of Christ's kingdom, you will be rich in eternity. It's not wrong to want to be rich, but the question is, what riches are you longing for? What riches are you living for? We will be rewarded if we live faithfully with what the Lord places in our hands as managers today. Randy Alcorn wrote a book many years ago called The Treasure Principle. And in that book, he says, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. That's, that's the idea, is exchanging. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead into eternal riches as you use these resources for Christ. That brings me to the final investment advice that I think this parable is alluding to, is that what that looks like when it comes to investing your resources according to a biblical worldview and investing your resources with a view to eternity and eternal riches, what that looks like, practically speaking, is investing in people, investing in souls, investing in making disciples. Jesus says in verse 9, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Here, it's a very simple thing he's saying. Invest your resources to make eternal friends. Invest your resources to bring people into the kingdom of God with you so that when you die or when the Lord comes again, they will welcome you into your eternal dwellings. It's all about making disciples. Invest yourself in the Great Commission. Invest your resources in advancing the Great Commission. That's what we're here for. We're not here to make a name for ourselves. We're not here to have a great career. We're not here to have a, a family with two kids and a dog and a cat in a nice suburban house. That's not why we're here. We're here for the Great Commission, to make friends for ourselves for eternity. Human beings are the only commodity that will exist after death. So invest in the souls of the lost. We should be invested in making disciples through evangelism, Sunday school, Bible study, Bible translation, preaching, church planting, foreign missions. We should be investing, directing whatever resources we don't need to live in, in, in this life, as a faithful disciple, we should be directing to the Great Commission, both locally and abroad. This investing probably won't increase your worldly wealth much. Matter of fact, it may deprive you of worldly wealth, but it will store up treasure in heaven. Back in chapter, Luke chapter 14, a couple of chapters ago, we looked at the parable of the Great Banquet and just want to read this uh, verse uh, 12 and 13 for you. Again, listen to what it says in light of what we've been talking about in chapter 15, 16. It says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they invite you in return and you be repaid, unless you seek a earthly reward. 
But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Later in chapter, next week in chapter 16, we're going to look at the, the last parable in this chapter that Jesus tells. And it's about, it's, it's a parable, it's a story about a rich man who lived for his wealth, who lived for this world's re, uh, um, benefits and rewards and comforts, and a poor man named Lazarus who was begging for money at his gate. And as the parable goes, they both died. The rich man goes to hell and he suffers immensely alone in hell while the poor beggar Lazarus goes and is welcomed, notice, welcomed into heaven by Abraham. And the tragedy of that story is that the rich man had every day, it says, that Lazarus was begging for help at his gate and he ignored him every day. Every day he had the opportunity to make an eternal friend, but instead he hoarded his wealth for his own comfort and his own status and his own pride. And when death came, he was left horribly destitute and alone. So Jesus is driving home that point that we need to use whatever earthly resources the Lord places within our control as managers, not only within a biblical worldview, not only with a view to eternal riches, but with a view to accomplishing the Great Commission, making disciples of Jesus Christ. How do we do that? How do we store up that treasure in heaven? How do we invest in people? How do we make friends who will receive us into eternal dwellings? First of all, invest in your children. Don't just invest in your children to become dancers and athletes and singers and, and to invest in their career, their college education. Certainly all those things are good and all those things are beautiful and all those things can be true. Those are not bad things to invest in, but not only that. Make sure you're investing in making them disciples, making sure they have all the resources they need to be disciples of Christ. Invest in your local church ministry. Matter of fact, I would commend to you to use the church's budget. You, you trust the, the, the elders and the deacons of this church to come up with a budget to use the church's resources for the sake of the kingdom of God and making disciples. Use that as a, as a guide and a pattern for your own family giving, your own individual giving. Look and see how this church is supporting the Great Commission, both internally among our own, believe, uh, own, among our own family of believers here, as well as in our local community and abroad. And so you can look at how to fund the Great Commission and help the Great Commission both, and I'm, again, we're not only talking about money here, certainly money is the focus of this parable, but we're talking about time, treasures, and talents, ways in which you can invest. We know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You only have a short time in this world. Eternally, eternity lasts a very long time. Make sure you're living for those riches and not this world's riches. Let's pray. Father, you have given us so much and compared to so many in this world, we're, everybody in this room is rich. We have so many more resources at our disposal. Lord, help us to more and more understand what it means to be a steward, to be a, a manager of those resources, that these things don't belong to us, that they belong to you and we are to use them for your glory, and to build your kingdom. But Lord, I thank you for the many, many promises in your word that all of this comes back as good to us. 
as we seek the good of others, as we seek the good of the kingdom of Christ, as we seek the glory of God, all of it comes back for eternal good to us. And Lord, help us to live more and more for those eternal heavenly treasures. And Lord, purge from us this love of the earthly treasures, this love of money that can not only be detrimental, but can be destroying to our souls. Lord, we thank you for all you've done. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for your grace that makes all this possible. We pray in his name. Amen.